0: Good morning, Peter. morning. Good to see you all again. Uh, let me add my thanks uh, to your thanks to all the, uh, everyone who's helped with this together. I haven't benefited from all of their services, but uh, I appreciate the, uh, particularly the technical side of things and how smoothly that's gone. I'm very grateful that we've been able to have at least this much contact. I regret again that I wasn't able to get over there and be there in person. I want to particularly thank Andrew for the uh, for the invitation to speak uh, the last couple of days and uh, to to uh, participate in the conference. Uh, before I get started, I wanted to say a couple of things about my last lecture here. Uh, I, I warned uh, Andrew. I don't know if I said this to you all, but uh, I warned Andrew that my lectures wouldn't necessarily correspond to the notes that I sent. Uh, and that's uh, not been true. The The notes have been fairly uh, close to what I was saying, uh, except for this talk, you'll you'll be able to see overlap between what you have on your note page and what I'm going to say. But it's going to be like a uh, much looser relationship than there has been uh, as I've been continuing to work on this final lecture. Um, up until the up until yesterday afternoon, I was putting the finishing touches on it. Uh, the other thing I want to say is that uh, what I have to say in this final lecture is more speculative than things I've been talking about. I've been talking about the text of First and Second Kings, and I can uh, some of that. I was trying to fill in uh, fill in things that are not explicitly said in in uh, Kings, but I, I think are good and necessary deductions to use the re- phrasing of the uh, Westminster Confession. Good and necessary deductions from the text of Scripture, um, but in this session, what I want to do is apply some of the things I was talking about uh, to an interpretation of a couple of the features of modern. Culture and modern politics, and that's inevitably going to be more speculative. Um, trying to uh, isolate uh, causation uh, for trying to understand how our world came to be what it is and what the driving forces are that shape the world that we live in. Uh, that's a, that's a much more speculative thing than interpreting a text that we can all look at and and uh, grapple with and in uh, and, uh, and uh, is a that as complex as first as, uh, and second Kings is, it's a, a manageable and finite text uh, as opposed to the uh, truly infinite complexity of trying to figure out uh, any, even any moment of, uh, of actual human history. So I, I acknowledge that what I have to say is somewhat speculative and it does overlap uh, some with what Andrew was talking about in the last hour. Uh, there might be some divergences between the way we characterize things, but I think the there's overlap and perhaps complementary perspectives on the same phenomena that we're trying to explain and trying to respond to. But before I start, let me let me open with prayer. Father, we thank you for this new day. Uh, we thank you for the uh, uh, the way that you've been with us as we've studied things together. We thank you for the uh, the insight that you've given. We thank you that uh, you've given us your word and that you've preserved it and that you've poured out your spirit on us so that that word can come alive to us. And we pray, uh, Father, as we uh, conclude the conference, that uh, we would uh, be, that we would grow in wisdom, that we would be uh, more faithful having been uh, through the study the last couple of days uh, as we seek to serve you in the world that you placed us in the time that you placed us. Father, grateful to live in this time and with all the things that confuse us and that uh, perhaps even cause anxiety and fear. We're grateful that you've uh, chosen to place us in this time and to um, take on the challenges of the world that we live in. And we pray that you would enable us to do that with courage, with uh, faithfulness, uh, with joy Uh, And that uh, your light would shine through us into a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. I think for a few minutes at the beginning here about what uh, what a secular interpretation of the uh, the history of the uh, Israelite monarchy would look like. Um, This isn't this isn't really a thought experiment because you can find secular treatments of the history that's recorded in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes you can find secular treatments in textbooks of Old Testament history uh, that uh, purport to tell the the real truth about what happened uh, during the period of the monarchy. And what that means is that they bracket out all the religious and theological dimensions uh, and treat the text critically, trying to discern uh, the, the real happenings that the text might inadvertently uh, reveal but uh, the uh, text is often attempting to conceal uh, what would what would a what would a secular historian make of that history he wouldn't have he would have the text of first and second kings as one of his sources he would look for a text from other cultures surrounding Israel who would be looking at archaeological evidence what kind of things would they focus on as key factors in the in the history of the, the Israelite monarchy. I think the, the obvious answer to that is that they would be looking at uh, economic factors, depending on their orientation that might take precedence over everything else. They'd be looking at political factors. They certainly be looking at ideological factors. And in that sense, the, the uh, ideological history of first and second Kings would play a role in their understanding of how the events were being interpreted by biased, theologically biased uh, interpreters, but they wouldn't be taking that as uh, an explanation of actual events. That would just be a part of the part of the uh, uh, assessment of the ideology and the and the beliefs of ancient Israel. Uh, they would probably recognize the significance. They would certainly recognize the significance of Solomon's reign. They would probably say, "Well, the king exaggerates." Solomon's prominence in the ancient world Uh, but at least they would admit that Solomon's reign was the high point of the monarchy and they would try to explain the dynamics that lead to the splitting of the kingdom uh, in terms perhaps that would highlight some of Solomon's um, uh, some Solomon's marriages he's uh, marrying uh, princesses from uh, other kingdoms surrounding surrounding Israel. As I mentioned, the, the, the harem, Solomon's harem, is not not so much a sexual institution as it is a political institution. It's a way of entering into into alliances with with the uh, surrounding countries. But they would recognize that as one of the factors that leads to the splitting of the kingdom, because uh, there are certainly uh, uh, traditionalist priests, perhaps, there are traditionalists among Israel that would object to this intermarriage, Solomon's intermarriage with these other nations, uh, they would object to the the direction that he's taking uh, uh, liturgically and in terms of, and, and religiously. Uh, there might be some concerns from some of the elites in Israel, the court. Uh, suddenly, you have the court populated by uh, hundreds of foreign princesses, and foreign princesses uh, have their own family connections. And suddenly those wider family connections have some kind of presence and power at court. And you can imagine that there would be members of Solomon's court who were uh, Israelites who would be offended at the uh, kind of foreign takeover of the court. You can't turn around without, uh, without running into some princess uh, that uh, doesn't speak Hebrew and is not, is not part of our, it's not, it's not one of our people. Um, that, would be a, that would be a factor in, in creating kind of resentment and, and opposition. Uh, Kings itself highlights the forced labor program as, as a factor. That's what brings Jeroboam, uh, after Solomon's death, brings Jeroboam to Rehoboam. It, it, uh, that's, that's the, um, that's the uh, uh, protest that Jeroboam lodges with Rehoboam. Uh, Solomon made lives, he, he enslaved us, virtually enslaved us, made us work on his various projects. Uh, and and uh, Jeroboam comes as a kind of Moses figure in that uh, in that scene where he's saying, let my people go, uh, release the slaves, uh, let, the, uh, uh, let, the, let the burden of, of labor, lighten the burden of labor. And of course, Rehoboam doesn't do that. Um, as, as the history goes on, they would highlight um, pressures coming from different nations, from the Syrians, from the Arameans, eventually, of course, from Assyria and Babylon, these expanding empires and the various ways that the Kings try to jockey around those, those challenges. So I'd be focusing on, those are just a, a, a few things that the, a secular historian might find. And uh, I don't want to dismiss those at all. I think those are, uh, those are, genuine, uh, th- those are genuine factors in the history that Kings lays out and, and, and Kings actually alludes to some of them. And we can kind of speculate that some of them, some of the rest of them would be true. But an account like that really misses the key factors in understanding the history of the monarchy, uh, the things that I was highlighting yesterday. What is it that determines the direction and the shape of uh, the history of the divided kingdom? Uh, it's the, uh, the use and abuse of the temple. Uh, is the temple a house of prayer, or is it a treasury that kings plunder in order to uh, use, the, use the gold and silver from the temple to pay off, uh, to pay off uh, other powers. Um, the, the, the importance of prayer or the lack of prayer in the history of kings would be completely missed by a secular historian. Um, the, uh, the, fact, the fact that uh, Solomon's marriages lead to a division of the kingdom, not simply because of the dynamics that that creates at the court, or some of the, some of the um, possible political snat, uh, tangles that that leads to. But the reason why the uh, why, uh, why Solomon's marriages uh, lead to the division of the kingdom is because it offends God. It breaks one of Yahweh's rules of kingship, and Yahweh takes 10 tribes away from the house of David because of Solomon's sin. That uh, uh, Yahweh as an actor in human history, of course, would be completely bypassed. And because of that, the the a secular historian wouldn't really recognize the significance of prophecy. Uh, prophets would have to play a role in any account of the history of the kingdom. Uh, Elijah and Elisha would be prominent prominent uh, prominent uh, characters in any history of the history of the monarchy, especially the history of the Northern Kingdom, of course. Uh, but the the specific force of prophecy would not they wouldn't they wouldn't see. As as I, as we saw yesterday, uh, the the prophetic word uh, is spoken through it's the Lord's word spoken through the prophet, and that actually shapes the course of events. When the Lord speaks His word through the prophet, then that word is fulfilled, and uh, future events are determined by the Lord's uh, the Lord's pronouncements that come through the prophet. Uh, and as we saw yesterday, uh, the treatment of the prophets. Uh, is, uh, as a, is, a, is a key factor in how God evaluates and judges his people. Uh, that's, that's something that's highlighted in 2 Kings 17, as we saw a couple of times yesterday, that um, the, the fact that the, both the northern and southern kingdom uh, didn't listen to the prophets is, a key, is one of the reasons why the, the kingdoms are sent into exile. The Lord keeps appealing to them, Lord keeps trying to call them back to His covenant, back to Himself. Uh, they refuse to hear, and so eventually the Lord uh, turns them over to uh, their uh, their enemies. Um, a secular historian would completely miss uh, what I argued in my first lecture yesterday morning was is the key to the history of the monarchy, which is the Lord's commitment to David. Uh, the 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 entirety of Kings is about the death and resurrection of the house of David. David's house comes near to elimination uh, when Athaliah is king and the Lord preserves the house of David only by preserving Joash. Uh, The house of David almost comes to an end when Sennacherib invades Judah and besieges Jerusalem and intends to replace Hezekiah with a non-Davidic king uh, the house of David comes to the brink of disaster and is almost ended, uh, and yet the Lord preserves it. Um, the house of David is uh, seems to be eliminated, uh, and in, at the end of Kings, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and the Babylonians take many of the Jews into Babylonian exile, uh, and the one surviving king, the one surviving Davidic king, Jehoiachin, uh, is initially a prisoner in Babylon. And it looks like the Davidic kingdom is all but over. But again, the word raises Jehoiachin up and eventually he's going to send back uh, his people from exile. And one of the leaders of that uh, effort to rebuild the temple, to restore the people and rebuild the city is going to be uh, Zerubbabel who is a descendant of David. He doesn't become a king, but he is the Davidic king. And the Davidic line continues, of course, and Jesus himself is the culmination of that line. He is the true son of David. So that that's uh, that uh, I think is, is is the key factor in the history of kings, and a secular account of history simply uh, co- it, it, it simply ignores that because uh, you that's that's an ideological interpretation of history that's a theological interpretation of history. And a secular historian is not going to accept theological explanations for events as valid explanations. The only the only way that those would factor into a secular account. The history of the monarchy is, as uh, again, as an ideological perspective held by some of the people during that period, or at least during the period when the Book of Kings is being written. So, uh, I think that's uh, that that contrast between what a secular historian sees, which is truly there. I mean, that's uh, the kinds of things that they isolate and study are actual factors in human history. They're not making it up, but they miss the point. They miss they miss the center. They miss the foundation. They miss, they miss the really key factors in human history. And I wanna, I wanna apply that kind of logic uh, to a couple of examples, a couple of trends of uh, modern history, one a more recent one and one a more distant one. And again, the, the basic logic that I wanna use or the basic, the, the basic uh, tack I wanna use is to try to look past some of the obvious factors that would be obvious even to a secular historian and get down to what I think are foundational questions and foundational factors in human history, and as I argued in my first lecture, uh, I think those are uh, the word of God and the worship of God's people. Those are the, those are the two things that that determine the shape and the direction of human history. Uh, and I think we can look at some of the some of the um, movements and factors uh, and and features of our world and of the modern world more generally, and see that there's uh, at the root at least we can speculate that at the root of those things is, uh, is a, a certain way of approaching scripture, a certain way of teaching scripture, a certain way of worshiping God. Word and sacrament are the drivers of, uh, of human history. And the two things I wanna highlight, the two, the two things I wanna develop briefly here. Uh, first of all, I wanna talk about uh, today's uh, uh, confusions about sexual identity uh, and uh, the whole, that whole knot of problems. Uh, that whole knot of cultural uh, perversions uh, and I want to think about how where those come from and how how those uh, how those are rooted in uh, misunderstandings and misreadings of scripture or uh, a, a, a false directions in Christian worship. The other thing I want to look at is uh, the rise of the secular state and again I want to get down to um, thinking about how uh, the the church's teaching and worship, the way it approaches scripture, what it, how it teaches scripture, how it reads scripture and how it worships God are factors in uh, deep factors in setting the trajectory for uh, secularism. So how do, we, how do we assess the, the problems of sexual identity? Uh, I think one way to put it is in more kind of philosophical terms that the modern world is founded on a dichotomy uh, between objective and subjective realities. Uh, objectively, the world is nothing but uh, material uh, atoms, maybe maybe subatomic particles, um, but it's matter in various kinds of motion. Uh, that is the basic reality of uh, your body. It's the basic reality of the operations of everything in nature. Uh, it's the basic operation of everything in uh, the universe uh, the cosmos runs like a machine according to certain kinds of natural laws that we can uh, that we can discover by by uh, by scientific research uh, and we can find the physical laws we can find the chemical laws we can find the biological processes that uh, that uh, run things and all of that is simply uh, it's amoral uh, it's It's a realm that that has no inherent meaning to it. It's just a machine. A machine doesn't have any consciousness or meaning to it. A machine just works, and that's the way the the world works. And on the other hand, we have the realm of subjectivity, which is the realm of meaning, the realm of ideas, uh, the realm of value, but that's all Internal and subjective. I mean, on this 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 account, uh, as a, in the stark way that I'm putting it, just is is is, is incoherent. I mean, if you have a it, if you have a completely mechanistic reality, then it's very it's impossible to explain how we even develop uh, the possibility of consciousness or subjectivity. Where does that come from? If it's if we just have how how do machines develop subjectivity? Uh, and of course, there are materialists who try to explain that in purely material terms, uh, but highly unsuccessful efforts to explain what's going on uh, in actual experience. In our, in our everyday experience, we can't explain it on purely materialist terms. But that's, that's sort of the reigning paradigm in, um, in the modern world. It's the kind of, it's the kind of uh, paradigm that uh, children are taught in schools. If they go to a science class, they're taught about a material reality that operates according to certain kinds of uh, laws that don't have any uh, human meaning uh, inherent in themselves. And any kind of meaning or value in things is something that we impute to things from the outside. Uh, those are uh, those are purely subjective uh, uh, impositions on a reality that doesn't have any kind of inherent direction or meaning or purpose. Uh, uh, if we think things have purpose, that's because we're anthropomorphizing, Uh, we're we're attributing kind of human attributes and human purposes to, uh, for example, uh, the process of evolution. The process of evolution is just a matter of natural selection, um, random mutations over vast periods of time, and you get certain kinds of species. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a formula. Uh, And if we, think that there's a kind of direction to that that's 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 a, a category mistake we're just imposing uh, a human value or human purpose on a process that has nothing to do with it, purpose or value evolution doesn't care where it's going it just chugs along like a like a big like a big biological machine generating new species over the course of millions and millions of years so i think that 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 is the paradigm that is behind Uh, our confusions about sexual identity is behind the confusions about, uh, particularly in in the kind of extreme case of transgender ideology, uh, where the objective reality of the body that's in the objective realm, no longer determines the subjective reality of who I am, rather the opposite. Uh, The public reality of my body that everyone can see doesn't determine that I'm male. It doesn't determine that I have a particular, uh, a particular sex. Uh, my sex and my, my, uh, my, my, uh, my sexual identity is something that I uh, determined by my, by my will, I, I choose. Um, and uh, I can choose now from a vast menu of different options. I don't, I'm not I'm not left with the simple binary choice of male or female. I can choose from many different options and decide, and I can I can alter my sexual identity. That's all based on this dichotomy between the objective uh, objective reality uh, of the world, which includes my body, and the subjective reality of my um, mind or whatever we want to call it, uh, my will. Uh, uh, Douglas Farrow, a, a Canadian Roman Catholic. Uh, uh, theologian has written a, uh, an excellent article on this, um, where he uh, points out the, the odd fact that uh, even though that we have a modern world that uh, purports to be materialist, uh, in our sexual con- in our sexual debates today, the body that is the material body kind of retreats, and what's really publicly significant now is not the body but uh, the will or the or the you know, if you want to put it in classical terms, the soul, uh, Pharaoh says the body is now private and the soul or what the soul asserts about the body is now the public. The, the body is aborted, he says. Uh, and uh, the distinctions between the given world and the desires between objective and subjective are all being erased and they're being enveloped by this subjectivity. So there is a kind of overcoming of that dichotomy, but it's, a, it's an overcoming of that dichotomy that treats the body as a purely uh, as an essentially meaningless uh, machine, uh, to which I bring meaning. When when Christians are confronted with this dilemma of uh, objective reality versus subjectivity, I think our instinct is to defend objective reality, and we want to say no, no, the body, the body. We want to defend the body. We want to defend objectivity. We believe in objective truth. It's not the case that all truth is subjective. That everyone can make his own truth for himself. There is objective truth out there. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's actually a mistake. I think that what we need to do, in fact, uh, a more radical Christian position would be that the entire dichotomy is, is, is wrong. That dichotomy between subjectivity and objectivity is the result of a philosophical and theological error. Uh, and so if we choose one over the other in either direction, if we want to if we if we insist on the uh, the uh, the uh, primacy of objectivity uh, we're just taking one side of the dichotomy but we're leaving dichotomy itself intact and what we need to do is just challenge the, 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 the dichotomy and say that the idea that the objective world uh, the world of, of the material world the idea that that doesn't have any inherent meaning that is simply a false assumption. Uh, the, the material world is created by a God who imprints himself, his, uh, his character on, on everything. Uh, there is uh, everything that is in a, in, a, in a creationist viewpoint. And by creationist, I don't mean a particular view on creation. I'm just saying, if you believe that the triune God created the world, then you believe that objective reality, what we think of as objective reality has meaning and that that meaning is uh, in, in, uh, is built into it by a person, the creator. Uh, the reason why uh, the material world has inherent significance is because a subject, that is God, has created it to have that meaning. In fact, this uh, the the we think what we think of as the objective world is actually. Uh, uh, a, Revealing things to us about God, Romans one, I, I cited yesterday. Uh, the the things uh, God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what He's made. God is speaking to us constantly through the creation. He's speaking to us constantly through the through material reality. And so, what we think of as objective reality is actually a, a revelation of a of a subject. Uh, and when we're encountering objective reality, it's just not uh, it's not what uh, Martin Buber called an I it relationship. Uh, I having a, a sense of my own consciousness, confronting a world that's just a, a bare it. It's even when I'm confronting the creation, I'm confronting a thou because this is God's world and he's present in it. And he's speaking to it in every facet and every in every moment. Um, so the whole dichotomy between objective and subjective is a result of a theological error. So I think it's a it's already a rejection of a creation creationist viewpoint, and so I don't think we should choose one or the other. I think we need to say, um, on the contrary, this is a, this is a, a false uh, opposition. But the question I want to raise is, where did this come from? How did this where did this uh, dichotomy between uh, a me- mechanistic kind of uh, factual world versus the value laden subjectivity of persons. How, where, did that, where did that dichotomy arise? Uh, and you can, find, you can find sources in early modern philosophy, for example, Descartes is often cited as the, the source of this basic, uh, this basic opposition between the mind uh, and the uh, ex- extended world of space that li- exists outside the mind, uh, between the subject and the object, that uh, Descartes is often cited as a as as a as a beginning point for that kind of paradigm. But I think we already have uh, some beginnings of that within Christian theology, uh, beginning in the in at certain with certain movements in the Middle Ages, uh, and I'm thinking of the way that uh, there's a there's a shift in the late Middle Ages that the Reformation in part uh, in part uh, uh, accepts and 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 further's there's a shift in the understanding of how Scripture is to be read and what Scripture is. Uh, and uh, instead of seeing the Bible as, uh, as a as uh, Augustine or Thomas Aquinas would have uh, as having both a literal meaning that is recounting things that have actually happened and people who have actually existed, but also scripture precisely in its literal meaning bearing spiritual significance. Uh, Augustine divide uh, Augustine identifies uh, uh, a a, a, a literal sense of scripture. He, he says that there are also a spiritual sense by the time you get to Thomas Aquinas, that spiritual sense is kind of proliferated into multiple spiritual senses. Uh, but when you're reading the Bible uh, for the, the, the uh, uh, first 1,000 years, the first 1,200 years of Christian history, uh, nobody thought that the Bible was just, re- just recording the facts of history. It was recording facts of history the literal sense that had embedded within themselves spiritual senses; the events themselves had meaning. That's the point I was making in my first first lecture about uh, typology. That typology is not just a way of reading scripture, but it's a, a way of reading history and seeing that history itself is meaningful. Uh, that was the that was the reigning paradigm for the first twelve hundred years of the Western Church, at least. Um, In the late Middle Ages, you have the beginnings of uh, movements that are highlighting and isolating the literal sense of scripture. Uh, And that movement is part of the Reformation uh, inheritance. That's in part, that's a, 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 a proper critical move against some of the excesses of medieval, biblical interpretation, the allegorization of medieval interpretation. But in another sense, it's, a, it's the beginning of this fracturing between uh, factual uh, reality and meaning. Uh, Peter Harrison has written a number of books about the development of early modern science, uh, and he talks about these developments within biblical hermeneutics as part of a shift in the Christian imagination that begins to open up this dichotomy between the objective world of fact and the subjective world of value. Uh, and that be, that's becomes uh, uh, operative within the church's reading and teaching of Scripture. And as the church uh, uh, begins to uh, treat the Bible as a disclosure of uh, previously unknown facts, rather than, as, as we've been des- describing, Scripture as a, as, an account, as a theological account of history. That's what, that's what Scripture is, a theological account of history. If you treat Scripture as just a disclosure of certain facts that we wouldn't know without without revelation, um, you're already opening up that dichotomy between objective reality of uh, of fact and nature, uh, and the subjective reality of meaning and value. And again, Peter Harrison thinks that those uh, hermeneutical movements of the late Middle Ages were an important factor in the opening up of that of that dichotomy. There were philosophical movements going on at the same time. In the medieval church, that reinforce that. I think another another way we can characterize this again. I'm to go back to what I said at the beginning. Um, my 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 presumption is that uh, word and sacrament are the drivers. What we what the church does uh, in its teaching and understanding and proclamation of the word, what the church does in its worship are the drivers of human history. Uh, and so, if you have this dichotomy developing within the church's consciousness and the church's imagination, this dichotomy between fact and, uh, and meaning uh, in, in the hermeneutical system that's being used, and that, that has proliferating cultural and political effects. I think you have the same kind of thing with some of the developments surrounding uh, the, the, uh, uh, the theology of the Eucharist. And I'm thinking particularly here of uh, Reformation era debates uh, concerning the uh, theology of the real presence. Uh, the theology of the Lord's Supper is much bigger than just the theology of the real presence, but that that became the the hot-button debate, uh, hot-button debate, particularly between uh, Zwingli and Luther. And what's going on in that debate, at least in part, is a kind of separation of symbol and reality, uh, where uh, those who want to say that the the real the, the presence of Christ in the supper is real. There's a real presence uh, that's that's true, not symbolic. Whereas on the other side, you have people saying, "No, it's symbolic and not real." I mean that that's a that's an oversimplification of both positions. But there's this there's this kind of bifurcation that's developing within that within that uh, debate, uh, and uh, symbol and reality kind of go their separate ways uh, in. Uh, the, uh, in the uh, in the debates about the Eucharist, actually, I think there are earlier uh, earlier tendencies in this direction with some within some of the debates uh, earlier in uh, the church's history. If you go to the earliest debates over the doctrine of the real presence, I think you already see that tension. That is one one side of the debate is affirming reality; the other side of the debate is affirming symbol. Uh, neither of them are really integrating symbol and reality in any. In any in any uh, uh, in any convincing way, I, I think that you know the, you can say the same thing is true of uh, um, the the developed uh, Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Uh, the transubstantiation is an affirmation that uh, the presence of Christ, that Christ in the supper, is real and not symbolic. But that's just the other. That's, that's just the other side of the coin. That's just the other side of the dichotomy, and that's already setting up for a reaction. Well, no, it's not real. It's just symbolic. They're both operating in the same paradigm. And again, I think what we have to do is to reject the dichotomy, and say uh, reality is symbolic. Symbols are real. Uh, is the bread uh, that we eat at the Lord's Supper Christ's body? Well. Uh, the early Luther said, "That's what the Bible says it is." Is it bread? The early Luther would say, "Well, the Bible says it is." You'd ask young Luther, "How can it be both?" And he would say something like, "I don't know, but the Bible says it's both, so it must be both." Um, that's uh, that that kind of merging. I don't think we need better. We need more sophisticated answers to the question than that. That doesn't work. That we need to we need to do better than that. But the instinct is right not to separate the two, to say it's both bread and body. It's both symbol and reality. Uh, we both uh, eat actual bread. And at the same time, somehow, uh, we have to uh, affirm that we're receiving Christ and we're communing with Christ. So um, that's that's a long way from talking about uh, transgenderism. <laughs> uh, But I I hope that I've been able to show you that there's some commonality between the the world picture that's being, that's implied by uh, transgenderism and our various sexual confusions. That is the dichotomy between will and body. And in this case, the triumph of will over body. Um, But whether you have the triumph of will over body or the triumph of body over will, you're still operating in the same dichotomy. Uh, and I hope you can see, I hope I've at least uh, suggested uh, uh, that there's an analogy between that and the, di- and the dichotomy between symbol and reality that we find both in Christian, uh, Christian teaching the Bible and in Christian understanding of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the other, the other um, topic that I wanted to discuss uh, is the rise of the secular state. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a fairly unique characteristic of uh, of the modern age. Uh, Francis Oakley um, in a series of books, but particularly in a book on kingship has argued that um, for the, the most of human history, political rule has been buttressed by and intertwined with uh, religious realities with religious affirmations. You can see this in um, uh, ceremonies of coronation. I mean. Uh, you have coronations. We don't have coronations over here in my world. You have coronations, and your coronations are infused with Christian symbolism. I mean, um, you have have a queen who is still uh, considered to be, uh, in some sense, anointed of God for the purpose of ruling uh, Great Britain and the Commonwealth. that's an intertwining, that's, that's a very traditional understanding of what politics is. The idea that you can disentangle politics from, uh, from uh, religious and theological affirmations is a very recent development uh, in terms of human history. And it uh, it's, it's hasn't really existed in any kind of pure way, uh, except in uh, theoretical, uh, in books of political theory uh, but I think mo- the modern age at least has a tendency toward and an aspiration toward disentangling uh, the uh, uh, religion and politics so that, uh, uh, so that politics can, can function as truly political and religion can be mo- more purely religious. Um, Andrew, Andrew mentioned this uh, in his talk this morning uh, that the, the origin of this development goes back to the early modern period, and and the, it's in the aftermath of the Reformation, the religious wars that follow the Reformation. Uh, and at least the pretext for saying that the church must be secularized, it must be purged of religious and theological elements. The pretext uh, is religious violence. Uh, whether that's actually what's going on in the post-Reformation era, is, I think is an open question. Uh, William Kavanaugh's uh, book, The Myth of Religious Violence, I think is a is a very effective counter to the idea that uh, the the wars that followed the Reformation are are, uh, are can be characterized as simply religious wars that there, people are just killing each other over transubstantiation. Uh, he points out that there's there's things are much more complicated and there it's what's going on in those so-called religious wars is actually uh, much more. It's the the rise of the modern state with religion being being brought in as a rationale and, and justification for political uh, and military operations. Um, so I, I, commend that, I commend that book to you, but at least the pretext uh, of theorists is uh, religion in politics makes politics too hot. It raises the stakes too high. I mean, you have people struggling for political power that can be violent when, they're, they, think they're, when they think they're struggling over ultimate realities then uh, then they get really vicious. Uh, if they think that what's at stake in their political struggles is not just, when, when they think it's the will of God that's at stake, uh, then they're liable to do anything. Uh, and to um, to um, uh, and there's a particular kind of violence that comes with uh, religious politics. And so the best thing to do is for the state to just uh, give up on taking any kind of position on, uh, on religious or theological topics. I mean, um, uh, the, the, uh, what does it matter after all uh, to a king or a president or a prime minister? What does it matter if Christ's presence in the supper is uh, transubstantiation or consubstantiation or memorialist or whatever? Uh, my, the policies of government will remain the same has no effect on uh, any, of the, any of the policies that a government might adopt. So the state can concentrate on its own business, its own political business of running the country and providing, uh, providing the uh, goods and services of political life. Uh, if it doesn't get involved in those, besides the state isn't qualified to make those kind of decisions, leave it to the church. Uh, and that that's also good for the church. The church can be more purely the church if it's if it gives up these political responsibilities. An atheological state is more purely political, uh, and apolitical church is more purely religious. It's better if we part ways and just uh, uh, let uh, uh, each go in its own way, and each each will kind of nod to the other um, in, uh, in when it when it has you know when there's an advantage. In in the U.S., of course, there are uh, religious trappings to what what uh, passes for our coronations. When a new president is inaugurated, there are there's a Bible. He he takes his oath on the oath of office on a Bible. Um, Some kind of religious uh, rhetoric is typically used. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, There are other uh, religious trappings. it's, it's good for the masses, it's good for the, you know, the flyover country where people still go to church, um, but uh, it doesn't really have any integ- integral role in how politics works. So you have, you have uh, a secular state, a private, and the, and the flip side of that is a privatized church. And those two go together. And the, the claim is that that's good for both because it leaves both to be more purely itself. But th- the, the, whole, the whole setup is, I think, a, a ruse. Um, uh, the, the claim is that the state is incompetent to judge religious matters, but somehow the state has the competence to judge what counts as religion. And so it polices the borders of public life. And uh, in the states, at least, judges are deciding what counts as religious entanglement, improperly mean, religious, religious entanglement with the state and what doesn't. Well, how do they know uh, they're supposed to be incompetent to judge religious matters? Isn't that a religious matter? And for that matter, how, how does the state, which claims to be incompetent to judge matters of theology, how do they know that transubstantiation and consubstantiation don't matter? It, it might make a big difference. You know, Tax policy might depend on the position you take on the real presence. I mean, who knows? The state can't make that decision. How can the state make that decision? It's incompetent in theological matters, and yet it's made that decision that it's not going to take a position on that. So uh, the 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 theory that's behind this is uh, is actually uh, I don't think it's actually um, uh, I, I called it a ruse. I think it is a ruse. It uh, it's. Uh, uh, theorists who claim that the state is, uh, is withdrawing from religious matters, are that's not, that's not actually what's happening. And you can't do it anyway. I mean, um, every state has to have some interest in the education of the young. Uh, for, for classical political philosophy, you find in Plato and somewhat in Aristotle, uh, education is the issue for political life. And you can see why. I mean, you can have a one generation polity if you don't uh, if you have no have no children and don't educate them if you want to have a multi-generational polity if you want to have a republic that continues over time and maintain some kind of coherent uh, reality as a polity you want to have a tradition then you have you have to have education and the education has to in some way pass on the tradition that you want to preserve or else you don't have a, a polity that extends through time. Education isn't uh, as an, uh, necessarily a, t- a concern for uh, political leaders, and it's necessarily a moral and religious concern. You can't dodge the question uh, of whether teaching children that God exists or not, that that's irrelevant. But you, can't, you can't dodge that question. You can say, we're going to remain neutral. Well, you've taken a position then, if you're remaining neutral about whether God exists in the classroom, then you've taken a position on whether God is relevant to the things that you're studying. Um, you can't you can't be an uh, uh, an uh, irreligious or an amoral uh, political entity. That's impossible. Uh, but again, I want to I want to penetrate a little bit further and ask not so much where the secular state comes from. I, I've tried to give some sketch of that. But what is it going? What's going on in the church? that churches uh, accept to the degree that they do, accept their own marginalization, their own political and cultural marginalization. Uh, how, how does the church ac- uh, adjust itself to uh, its own privatization? Because that's part of this, the rise of the secular state. That's just the, that's just the other side of the coin. If you're gonna have a secular state, you have to have a church that's playing along and letting the, letting the state alone, more or less, and not trying to bring, uh, as I said yesterday, bring the word of the King of Kings to bear on the King's actions. Now, that's, not, that's not the way, that's not the way that uh, uh, early, uh, early Christian pastors and bishops operated. I mean, we know this, I mean, after, after Constantine at least, um, Christian pastors and bishops took upon themselves the authority to correct kings, uh, they didn't think of themselves as apolitical or un, unconcerned about the uh, common life of the nation or the city. Um, we have very famous examples of uh, bishops and popes who are disciplining kings. Uh, that's, uh, and uh, whatever, whatever uh, entanglements there are in that and abuses of power that you have, I think, again, the instinct is right that the church has something to say especially if the leader is a member of the church, then the church, church's leaders have the authority to speak to the king and to correct him and to discipline him as, uh, as uh, bishops and popes sometimes did. So how did the church get to the point where it was willing to go along with its kind of marginal and apolitical status, its privatized status? And again, I want to say that there are things going on in kind of the basics of church life that lend themselves to that, that reinforce that, uh, a certain conception of what the church is. Um, and I think, again, we can go to the, to the kind of retreat or the decline of theological history, to use the term we've been using, uh, a, a new, new readings of the Bible that read the Bible not as an account of public history, not as, uh, as um, Leslie Newbegin liked to say, not as public truth, but as a book for private devotional life, um, so you know, that the, the what the kind of thing I'm talking about is that you you read you read in your morning devotions you read through the Book of Kings, and you try to apply what you find in the Book of Kings to your own soul. I I think that's perfectly legitimate, but if that is the only level of application of Scripture, then we're missing actually what Scripture is, which is and as Andrew pointed out in his first lecture, is largely a theological history of the world. Uh, so in, in order to adjust to our privatization, we had to adjust what we thought the Bible was and the ways we read the Bible. Uh, and we had to uh, begin to apply them in purely individual uh, uh, kind of spiritual a spiritual manner and not, uh, not recognize that the Bible itself purports to be about the the history of nations, and uh, and have uh, the Bible has an inherently political edge to it. Uh, another thing that I think uh, has to be a factor here, again thinking about the, the way the worship of God um, cultivates a certain kind of piety, in this case a certain kind of privatized piety. I think it there has to be, one of the factors has to be the shift in Christian hymnody. Um, for Uh, Most of the first millennium and a half of the church, in the early church, in the monasteries, in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation, the Psalter was the hymn book of the church. Medieval monks sang through the Psalter every week. Uh, the, The Reformers all wanted psalm singing, particularly in the Reformed side of the Reformation. They wanted psalm singing, not just by monks, right? They wanted psalm singing by common people. And psalm singing was a huge um, part of uh, uh, reformed piety in the 16th and 17th centuries. But then somewhere, I mean, we can, uh, uh, people who know about these things uh, more deeply than I do say that uh, they blame Isaac Watts. I, I imagine I'm stepping on some toes, but I'll keep doing it. They blame Isaac Watts for introducing uh, psalm paraphrases and hymns that take out all the gritty stuff. You don't have to read very far in the Psalter to know there's gritty stuff. That is to say, a king on Zion who breaks nations with a rod of iron. You read uh, three psalms in, and David is surrounded by enemies. And those enemies are there through most of the Psalter. Uh, Does Isaac Watts have any enemies in his hymns? Do we sing about enemies? Uh, Does our hymnody uh, put us in a position where we are um, confronting the world? Is our hymnody cultivating a kind of piety that would confront the world? Or is it cultivating the kind of piety that is Uh, consistent with a privatized church and I think that in my mind the latter is obviously the case Uh, insofar as the the Psalter has been minimized and and uh, and boulderized we're singing. we still sing bits of psalms but we don't sing the nasty bits we avoid those Uh, and I think that's uh, that that's part of the dynamic this point I'm making is that part of the dynamic of the uh, rise and establishment of the secular state. Um, if the church were singing psalms, I think it'd be much harder for the church for Christians to think that they don't have any responsibility with regard to uh, the common life of a nation or the or the political life of a nation. It'd be they'd be much uh, uh, it'd be impossible to think that the, that uh, Christianity is an apolitical religion. If we're constantly singing psalms. Uh, but if we're singing um, psalm paraphrases that smooth everything out, or gospel hymns from the 19th century, or little snippets of psalms and scripture, then that, uh, that uh, is uh, conducive to a piety that adjusts itself uh, to uh, the secular state. Now, uh, one last comment, and then I'll, um, I'll disappear because we're out of time. I, I'm not going to take any questions. Um, that, I didn't mean that. That was uh, that was cowardly. Uh, one of the one of the implications of what I've been saying is, if if this is right, or if you, if, if it's somewhat right, what it means is that many of the dislocations and um, and um, uh, uh, and uh, 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 much of the crookedness. Let me put it that way. Much of the crookedness of modern culture. Uh, is uh, the long-term fruits of things that the church has gotten uh, misadjusted. Ways of reading the Bible, understandings of symbol and reality at the Lord's table, what we sing uh, when we sing. If those things really are crucial to the development and the direction of modern society, then uh, that has, it actually has a reassuring Implication, because it means that there are things that we can do that begin to reorient our culture and over time will have some effect on, um, on uh, correcting it. So um, if, if we, in our churches, begin to sing psalms, at least there will be a pocket within, within a society of people who know that God is king and that he has exalted Jesus as king. They'll know that Jesus is my Lord is not a statement of uh, personal piety, but it's a statement of reality. They'll know that they have enemies. They'll be prepared to call on God uh, when their enemies attack them. Uh, If we have churches that are teaching the Bible as theological history, then we'll have churches that are no longer making those kind of dichotomies that begin to look at the world around them as uh, as, as uh, being encompassed by Scripture, not being outside of my religious concerns, but they're actually encompassed by what Scripture teaches. Uh, if we um, come to the Lord's table believing that through the symbols of bread and wine and through eating and drinking, we are actually communing with Jesus Christ, we're healing that breach between symbol and reality. As we're doing that, we're... Uh, we're uh, healing some of the basic wounds that are at the at the heart of the modern world that that's all within our power to do uh, I think those even if even if my cultural and political analysis isn't right I think those are things that we ought to do I think it's a good thing for churches to sing psalms and it's a good thing for churches to uh, have uh, the Eucharist regularly and to understand it as both symbol and reality but um,
1: but I, if, if I'm right,
0: then that's going to have, uh, uh, long-term, it's going to have an effect on uh, the way that the culture develops. And it's a way of, it's not It's not a It's not a quick fix. I don't think there are any quick fixes. Uh, it's not a way of, uh, you know, it's not magic. It's not like uh, adjusting the way we teach and read the Bible and having the Lord's Supper and beginning to sing psalms will immediately make the, the uh, sexual... Um, uh, the sexual confusions of our time disappear. It, it doesn't work like that. But we will cultivate within our churches a different vision of reality, and we'll begin to embody that different vision of reality in our worship. And that, over time, will have a dramatic effect on the the, the way the world uh, goes. So, thanks again for uh, your attention. Thanks for the invitation, Andrew, and I appreciate uh, I appreciate you all listening happy to answer questions.
1: Hi, Peter. My question really refers to yesterday's lecture, although it's not, um, uh, it's not unrelated to today's. But my question was about how we should see, I'm going to turn and look at you how we should see um, nations in in the modern world. So you talked about Catastrophes not being random and God um, causing the rise and fall of of nations. I think you even referred to to Great Britain and the British Empire. And uh, I'm just curious as to how, uh, if we should map onto our understanding of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah as God's chosen people from among the peoples, how we see national identities now and the culpability and responsibility towards God. In our weird culture, we tend to individualize uh, responsibility and faith and accountability, but can we take nations today and, and lines drawn between territories by human beings and apply to them, to governments and, and national identities, responsibility and accountability before God?
0: Yeah, thanks. Very good question. Uh, just on a, a one a question I think that was implied in that. It's not directly the question you asked, but um, the I don't think we should make a, a direct line from Israel to uh, any any uh, uh, any modern nation. The, the church is the fulfillment of Israel. The church is the new Israel, the priestly people. Uh, and obviously there are uh, a significant differences between the, the form that uh, Israel took in the Old Covenant and the form of the church in the New Covenant. But I think that's that's the continuity rather than, it has often been done. I mean, you have a, a lot of nations that have taken the, uh, the, the U.S. There's a long tradition in the U.S. South Africa has this kind of, uh, uh, this kind of mentality, the Afrikaners at least had, that they were the new Israel, that Israel was um, a paradigm for them. So um, just to clarify that point, I think it's a really good question because I think the uh, the uh, I think b- behind that is the is the recognition of the artificiality of a lot of modern nation states. Um, that's that's become clear uh, in the aftermath in the last thirty years in the aftermath of the the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, uh, when I was when I was growing up, there was a country called Yugoslavia. Um, that that doesn't exist anymore. It it never really was a country. Uh, it was a, a cluster of countries that was uh, that was a, cu- a cluster of peoples, I should say, that were dominated by a polit- particular political entity. I mean, you got all the all the stands that we had never heard of. Um, I had never heard of before the collapse of the Russian Empire. All the stands that emerged from uh, what was once the USSR, uh, and uh, so the, the uh, so. Th- Oh, you know and, and as you know a lot of the a lot of the African a lot of African countries are kind of um, uh, constructed by colonialists on maps uh, at great distance from the, the, the actual people that lived there. So uh, I think that that's I think that's that complicates things because what we think of now as nations don't really correspond to anything in biblical history. Uh, you'd have some you'd have some, Uh, some political entities in the present that would correspond that would have a a more or less homogenous ethnic identity that would have a long-term tradition that would have would have a long-term culture you would have some some peoples that uh, that uh, that uh, exist in that uh, uh, that still exist in that fashion but a lot of what we think of as nations don't correlate to what nations were in the bible Uh, but I think uh, uh, so uh, I think that complicates things I think there's still uh, so I would, I would, I would say you would, uh, we'd have to think more, think of modern nations kind of loosely on the, on the paradigm of biblical peoples, but I think there's, there is some kind of analogy, enough of analogy that we can think about, uh, uh, responsibility. I mean, you do have, after all, you do have, uh, empires as well as nations, peoples in the Bible that are held accountable, uh, and kings of uh, empire, em- emperors of those empires, kings of those empires, who are held accountable. Um, I mean, the, uh, and when, when Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, when Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, um, and he sees this vision of himself as a tree and the tree is cut down. And then Daniel is interpreting the vision. He says, what you need to do uh, is repent uh, and uh, basically pursue justice. Uh, don't, oppress, don't Don't oppress the weak um, he's holding an emperor accountable. That emperor is governing a a large territory that doesn't include, that includes rather lots of different people. And I think that kind of, that's more like what we have in the United States, Great Britain, um, even the nations, uh, even the nations of continental Europe were constructed in, you know, many of them fairly late in European history, constructed from a lot of smaller, uh, more ethnically, um, homogenous groups, uh, but God still holds those accountable. So I would say that there's an analogy, more of the analogy between biblical empires and modern nation states, rather than peoples and nation states. But I think there's an, the, the analogy is strong enough for us to say God deals with those uh, as people. I think that if the question is about our loyalty to those entities, uh, I think that that's, I, 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 I'll just not, I'll just say that that's a that adds an, another level of complication because you have now have different levels of loyalty that you're talking about. Uh, loyalty to uh, the 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 body of Christ, which I think is the overriding loyalty that transcends even family loyalty. The church is your family, your brotherhood. Uh, then you have maybe an ethnic loyalty. That ethnic loyalty might be subordinate, or that the ethnic group might be subordinate. I, mean, I think of tribes in Africa that where they're you know, have tribal, and tribal identities, but they're subordinate to a political entity that's larger than that tribe and includes many other tribes. So I think if you're talking about national, national identity and kind of uh, patriotism and love of nation, I think that, that, uh, that complicates things. But I, just, I think that the analogies are close enough to be able to say that God deals with, I would say God deals with modern nation states as collective entities. I think he still evaluates them.
1: Thank you, Peter. I'm just interested in terms of your comments about the uh, dichotomy of state and church. How that relates to the idea of um, like sovereign sphere sovereignty and um, God having ordained certain spheres that have their own particular boundaries, which is a right. kind of Calvinistic idea. How how does that square with the idea that, that these two things shouldn't be a dichotomy essentially?
0: Right. Well, uh, I would, uh, I'm not a huge fan of sphere sovereignty. Um, I think uh, that would be, that would be my fundamental answer. I I, I think that it's getting at something that's real. I think that there are different. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you just noticed, uh, but right. Where is it right up there? There was a cat walking outside my window. I don't think
2: there's a single person who hadn't noticed. (laughs) Okay, I just noticed. The cat is today's equivalent of
0: the bag. Okay. Uh, Has the cat been back there a lot? Oh, I I didn't put his food out. That's what happened. I don't think he's got any food. I'll have to do that when I'm done here. Um, Sorry. Uh, (laughs) What was I talking about? Um,
2: Sphere sovereignty.
0: Sphere sovereignty. I think it's getting at something that's real, and particularly when you're talking about church and state. I think there's... Um, there are definitely, um, I, I think uh, it, I think in, 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 in general ways, we can think about the uh, paradigm of ancient Israel, where you have a, a, a sanctuary that is run by priests and kings can't interfere with the, uh, we talked about this yesterday, Some there's some overlap, but priests have certain responsibilities in the sanctuary that uh, the king doesn't have. The king is functioning in the land. Uh, the king has certain responsibilities toward the sanctuary, but he's basically functioning in the land. So you have this uh, have those spheres, if you will, of operation and responsibility, and yet you have these zones of overlap uh, and mutual accountability that I think are part of it. And that's that's the part that I'm not sure is uh, as um, clear in the idea of sphere sovereignty as uh, that, that 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 those that those institutions overlap and interpenetrate. And I want to say in particular that the church uh, has authority. Um, again, you think in terms of the situation of medieval Christendom when kings were part of the church. Uh, the church has authority over kings. And I'm not sure on, a, on, a, on the model of sphere of sovereignty, whether, whether that's, I, I suppose you can make sense of that. But I think sphere sovereignty kind of pushes in the opposite direction. The church has its own authority over its own realm and the state over its own realm. The other thing that uh, kind of a, another concern I have about the paradigm of sphere of sovereignty is that it seems to uh, take a modern diversified uh, society with different kinds of institutions and make that normative. But that kind of di- that kind of pro- diversification is a historically contingent development. Um, you didn't have the sphere of the family and the sphere of business as two separate spheres until you had, you know, probably until you had industrialization. You really didn't have the sphere of the family and the sphere of politics as two different spheres the sphere of the state, because um, uh, for, uh, in many places for a long time, uh, uh, the kings were kings because they were part of families. They were descended from uh, the previous king so I think that uh, it feels like um, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very uh, romantic way to put it, I guess, Andrew. It feels like sphere sovereignty has taken uh, this, uh, uh, the, modern, the modern world and distribution of different responsibilities and institutions uh, and treated that as if it were a permanent part of social reality. And I don't think it is.
2: Very helpful Leslie, I know there will be loads of other questions that emerge, and uh, I'm sorry about that well I'm not sorry about that that's you're supposed to leave conferences like this often with more things to think about than you came in. Um, but I do want to say, Peter, I mean not just for the the level of, of content and your books, which have served many of us in many different ways, many of us have preached using them as as aids and guides. Um, but for your time and your warmth of spirit, not just the insight, but actually that sort of accessibility and humility. And there's just a lovely, yeah, the way you pray, the way you engage with people has just been so refreshing. It's a real delight to experience. And for, of course, getting up at 3.30 in the morning to be, not just to speak, but then to listen to other people speak. I mean, it's just remarkable. We are so grateful for all of your time and commitment. So thank you so much. Let's thank Peter for a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful job.